Attention America, we've officially turned into Berlin, Germany in 1940. So let's have a little history lesson for everyone out there. Does anyone remember what the Nazi Germans did before they took power? Well, they banned church services, they burned Bibles and books in the streets, they burned the flag, they tore down statues, they got rid of any and all history that they disagreed with, they got rid of the public police, only the rich could afford it, they banned guns, they got rid of God, they put their country in a state of fear, and they created domestic terrorist organizations who got rid of anyone and anything they disagreed with, aka the brown shirts. Now, does that sound familiar? Oh yeah, it's the BLM 2020, who are modern day domestic terrorists inside our own country who are actively destroying it. And they've already promised us if we do not condone to all of their demands, they will happily tear down our system. Hey, old fashioned Democrats and moderates, you better start freaking waking up this November because the silent majority is officially pissed off and we are done being silent now. Get off my freedoms. Trick, if you don't shut your dumb ass up, it's oh, just this is this is this is what it's what it's like now. 2020. Uh Sarah Michelle Geller looking hose on on the online complaining about freedoms. They probably ain't never met a, a black person. Yeah, yeah just Oh, God damn it. It is um, Friday, August 14th, 2020. I'm going to keep this brief because she, she just ruined my buzz. So, of course, a big story of, is uh, Biden-Harris 2020. See if we can, <laughs> let's see if we can. Actually do this. See if we can get another sister back in the White House. <laughs> oh man, just uh, just and I just hope uh, Joe Biden doesn't say anything dumb as hell next couple of months and just let just, just let Kamala talk cuz uh, we uh, we just we just we just need some 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 sanity at this point. Also, I'm pretty sure in the next two and a half months, we will get a lot of Republicans trying their damnedest not to call her either the B or C word. Yeah, Tucker Carlson has already fed the fuck up. A dude actually tried to correct him and say, yeah, this is Kamala, not Kamala or Kamala or whatever. And he was just like, oh, oh, here we go now. You know, she's not, she's not. You know, people saying she's she's you, you can't you can't she can't accept criticism and everything like that. Like nigga, it was just to say her name correct. Why the hell this dumbass sack of shit just Oh man, it is it, it's not gonna be pretty, I'm gonna tell you right now, but I've I'm pretty sure uh Kamala Harris who, who looks like every uh Every middle-aged uh, light-skinned lady who who just never took any shit from me, yeah, that's just just never taking any shit from from niggas in general. That's that's what that's what Kamala Harris is all about, and that's I'm looking forward to that, and it just and it and it turns me on a little. All right, um, uh, what else? Uh, 
Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Kanye West, he's still... Somehow uh, he got a uh, 2% of the black vote, 4% of the Hispanic vote, and 6% of the, the Gen Z vote, which is like... That, that, the whole, that whole thing is just like a huge mistake because like people don't like Kanye anymore. Kanye lost his goddamn mind and just like we 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 ain't doing that shit. And Republicans or Jared Kushner apparently they're they're buddies now. They're talking uh, in in secret rooms and shit, and and they all think that you know if put Kanye on the ballot that that ignorant ass nigga is gonna start you know vote for him. And let me tell you something now you know. I'm going to be honest, black people haven't really been down with Kanye uh, since, uh, we were talking about it, you know, since Jesus. Yeah, just going like, I don't know, I don't know a lot, I don't know a lot of black people that are into that life of Pablo, but, um, yeah, so Kanye is just going to go all around, act like a goddamn idiot, and... Him and, and the rest of the Kardashian family are just like you know we're just we're just here for him and the kids and just okay just, oh yeah uh, this is my one of my favorite stories according to a new survey of three thousand Americans many masks are sparing people from catching a sniff of bad breath. 57% of respondents say they are much more aware of their own bad breath thanks to wearing a face mask. So that's so that's a plus. You don't have to deal with people's stinking ass breath anymore. This is where yeah, that's 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 one of the many uh things like if you don't if you if you see a person not wearing a mask there's there's one there's not only are they complete assholes who don't care about your health uh, or even their health, but they they probably have stank ass breath. So just like just don't be around them at all. So this is just this is just great. You know, we never see a person who don't wear a mask just realize that they're they're flaming assholes and their breath stank. Breath smells like, uh, you know, uh, dead beaver carcass. You know, just breath, breath smells like, uh, you know that, you know that old man uh, depends scent. Maybe that's. You may you ever smell like an old man wearing depends? It's just, it's not well. It's not. It's not good. Just uh, give you a lot of other. Uh, bad sense, but uh, you know, I'll just, I'll just leave it at old man depends. Okay, what else? <clears throat> oh yeah, here's something that's like I just realized this. Oh, you know, the reason why I'm pretty sure the reason why people don't take coronavirus as, as seriously as they should is because it's, you know, it's not really a scary disease. <laughs> It is scary, but it's not like say because like when when all the news hit about coronavirus, people all thought, "Oh, we're gonna, you know, start dropping dead in the streets." It's just gonna be, you know, because we all we all watch the goddamn uh, end of the world movies and just like just the apocalyptic 
uh, movies and thinking just like some it's gonna be some whole contagion uh, bird box type of fucking thing where it's just like we can't go outside because we'll just drop dead and stuff. And it's not, and it's, it hasn't really been a thing. So and because it's mostly a uh, uh, hundred and uh, uh, yeah, let's just think we're still up. Was it 150, 160,000? Um, people, uh, you know, just dropping, you know, old people mostly. So it's not any of, you know, any big, uh, people just, uh, just, uh, just, just, just pet dropping out there, getting sick, getting sick and having, you know, having to deal with, uh, months of not being able to taste shit or just, you think you just like people don't. You, you like don't want to get sick at this point because you know we still have like the whole healthcare thing, which is a, just like a clusterfuck. But you know, people out there still taking chances, going to Smash Mouth concerts. Apparently, people still go to Smash Mouth concerts. They just fly there, just have three songs. They just like have "Walking on the Sun." Is that? I think that's uh, when the morning comes, and of course, uh, "All Star," which a lot of people don't even. Think it's the theme song of Shrek is really the theme song to Mystery Men. And you're gonna risk getting sick to go to a fucking Smash Mouth concert? Let's move on. Uh, oh yeah, Akon uh, wants a. Uh, you know, he said on on Vlad TV that uh, African Americans should. Uh, Get over slavery. Um, yeah, Akon caught heat this week after he was asked about the way slavery is viewed in Senegal, the West African country where he spent most of his childhood. The 47-year-old artist claims Singles no longer have, no longer think about slavery because they have overcome his horrors, unlike African Americans in Senegal. Where I can't do the Akon accent. We've kind of overcome the thought of slavery. We don't even think about it. He said, yeah, on Vlad TV. The only time we think about it, honestly, is when we're doing tours at Gory Island. Outside of that, people have lived and moved way beyond the slavery concept. Just it, listen, in South Africa alone, there is uh, like a 76.4% uh, population of, Af of uh, African, black South Africans, while in the white South African population is 9.1. So, you know, just, you know, black Af you know, South Africans and Africans in general can just kind of get over that hump because they are mostly the majority. So it's just like, you know, they can just tell white people to go fuck themselves. You know, not deal with that shit anymore. We still can't really do that over here. Just tell white people to go fuck themselves because, you know, the systematically oppress us, maybe get, you know, get, you know, get the police to kill us. So, yeah, so, you know, might be a little different over in Africa, Akon, so. Why don't you keep on saying locked up and leave us the fuck alone? Uh, just 11 minutes. Just, I really don't have much to say because, you know, just, uh, once again, uh, parent, not you know, just like 
the white lady killed my buzz. And uh, so <laughs> I'm just like, let's not just say, uh, yeah, I wish I could be the, you know, the happy peppy podcaster that so many podcasters out there are, but it's just like, it's just fucking so damn hard just to be like, you know, just, yeah, I wish I could, yeah, we really wish I could be, you know, just like the, you know, happy peppy and bursting with love uh, podcaster, but I'm a black man in America and I can't afford to be silly right now. I don't really have that luxury. So, so many things. Yeah. People are still trying to act like George Floyd really brought that whole uh, getting killed by a cop thing on himself. You know, they, they're so like they, they found the, the leaked body cam footage. And they're acting like, oh, George was acting, George Floyd was act, acting erratic and everything. And I'm just like, yeah, and he was murdered. So he, just like because he's acting erratic, he was also uh, crying uncontrollably because he didn't want to get shot or killed by the police who eventually killed him. So even in, even the, the passengers in the car, they were like, yeah, you might want to take it easy on him because... You know he's a, uh, you know, just like uh, he's, you know, he's he's kind of messed up in the haze. He's going through some problems, like you know, just. But no, they didn't listen to him, and so they ended up uh, putting uh, knee on his back and and, and and murder him. So so just 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 admit it. Just like you know, for, you know, I, I hate to it'd be bare of bad news, but the cops suck. They killed a man. Just. Yeah, I'm gonna wrap this up because you know, because once again, just like I'm, I'm sober. I'm sober. I got a headache, and because uh, we got a lot of show. Oh, oh, by the way, yeah, I just thought I'd throw this in, you know, because everybody's talking about the, uh, the Nicki Minaj and Megan Thee Stallion song, like wet, wop, W A P, wet ass pussy, wet ass pussy, whatever the fuck it's called. Uh, people saying that is the filthiest song they've ever heard in their entire life. Just like, oh, Ben Shapiro was 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 trying his best to clean all that shit up uh, on his whatever he does, and you know, just saying the lyrics over and over again, everything, and just saying, oh, it's just filthy, and like all fathers were just talking about how disgusting it was and everything. And if you honestly think that song is the filthiest thing you've ever heard two black women say on 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 the track. I just have one thing to say about that. I used to be scared of the dick. Now I don't live to the shit. Handle it like a real bitch. Have the hunter. Janet Jack me take it in the bug. Yes, yes, bug. That came out in nineteen ninety six. Literally the first the first track on Lil Kim's hardcore. Just talking about how she was scared of the dick. And now she's not anymore. And just goes down from there. Just 
just gets nastier and nastier. Just you know, she wants dick all in in her mouth and her butt and all that shit. Basically, you know, that's just like, you know, you think you think you've heard something nasty and then like some you know, somebody like me will pull out, Yeah, that's they that's some that's that somebody else did that like damn twenty five years ago. So damn near twenty five years ago. So it's like that's that's nothing new. Uh dear Lord. Let me just well, let me just go with it here. This is the most uh, perpendicular. Yeah, let's go with that. Uh, the most uh, perpendicular show on the interwebs. This is Everything is Canceled. Let's go.
set the tone when it's just me and you alone. Never lonely in the room, breathing slowly. Oh, you know me, yeah. Meditate, you can take me to a place where we can't be all alone. I let you hold me, cause you know me, me, yeah. Lay your head on my pillow, say, ooh. Touch is making me feel away. Ooh, ooh. When I get around you, I lose it. Lose it. Cause I feel so comfortable with you. You make me comfortable with you. I feel so comfortable with you You made me comfortable with you mm. You made me Wanna get, wanna go deep Intimate, let you in me Inside, you're deserving of my mind
This is Everything is Cancelled, a.k.a. Uncle Crizzle's Too Sober Hour. I'm Craig D. Lindsay, a.k.a. Uncle Crizzle, a.k.a. Black Larry David, a.k.a. Anastasia Beaverhausen, a.k.a. your one and only truly black friend. And uh, if you want to hit me up, uh, I'm, I'm all over Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, well, I'm not doing any reels. I'm not doing. I'm not do. I'm not doing a TikTok shit, even though I'm on TikTok. But I'm not doing the the real thing, reels thing that that Instagram. Just, just I'm just out there at uh, Uncle Crizzle. I mean, you can listen to this show on um, Anchor.fm slash Uncle Crizzle, as well as the various others like Spotify, Apple Playlists, all that stuff. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to let people know that this exists. And also, if you'd like to donate to the podcast, which you really do, because, of course, as always, I'm broke as shit. Uh, you can hit me up at uh, 
paypal.me slash Uncle Crizzle. Of course, I'm on Venmo and, and Cash App and all that shit, but I, I just, I'm, I'm a purist, like, like the PayPal. So paypal.me slash Uncle Crizzle. Um, let me uh, tell you about um, what I just played, starting off at the top with uh, Phil Collins. Apparently, Phil Collins uh, has been attracting a lot of uh, trendiness on the uh, Twitter sphere. Only recently, because of course those two twins that like listening to new stuff, uh, they 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 apparently heard uh, in the air tonight for the first time, and everybody was like, "Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah, that's a that's a song," and you, and you should know it by now. But uh, I thought I'd play another track from that album now that. Uh, that track was on Face Value, his a uh, his a uh, classic uh, solo album. Uh, I missed again. I missed again. That's that's a very bouncy tune. And uh, after that uh, was a new single. Uh, well, I mean, it's uh, he she, it, well her h e r, her she dropped uh, that single comfortable uh, earlier this year. Oh, Jesus, I love that woman. Just, I'm just so into she, she. She can play guitar and just like, and then, and the music, and her music doesn't suck. I'm just like a, a wonderful, lovely, talented human being. And yeah, I'm, and I, I, her hair looks nice. So, okay. That's, and after that, uh, it's you from, uh, Adrian Young, I hope I'm, is it Young or Young? It's like it's 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 Young, but there's an E at the end of it. So I know Young. I'm just gonna call it Young at the moment. If and if I'm if I'm mispronouncing it, somebody please let me know. Him and uh, Ali Ali Shaheed Muhammad, best known for a tribe called Quest. Uh, they have this thing. They well, they did this thing called the Midnight Hour, which is just like a this collaborative effort they did, and they invite a lot of people to perform with them. And one of them was uh, Raphael Sadiq. And they got together for that song, It's You. So so there you go. That's that's a lovely track I thought I'd play. Well, let me just get into the, the damn uh, interview this week because uh, this is this is a lengthy one. Actually, I've, I interviewed this guy like a couple months ago, so I mean to put this out there. So, uh, yeah, I'm just, I guess I'll just play it now. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, uh, we're here with a, uh, shall we say, very esteemed uh, film critic. He's written for various uh, publications, mostly in the Los Angeles area. He was a film editor for years at the Los Angeles Re- Reader. He's written uh, for you know the for New Times Los Angeles and uh, uh, you know uh, Los Angeles City Beat and other. Uh, other uh, various publications around those parts. And I thought I'd talk to him right now, uh, our first time actually talking. Yeah. So, uh, Andy Klein, uh, welcome to Everything is Canceled. Thank you. <laughs> and said, you've, you've been under the weather a little bit, you, as you told me. I know, so, yeah. You know, what, you here, you have a cold and stuff, so hopefully it is a cold. It is. It's allergies. Allergies. Okay. Allergies. Yeah, okay. That's, 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 that's crazy. I'm just about to say that. Just crazy about 
this time of year where it's just like because I've been having allergies as well with it's sinus stuff. Yep. And so it's kind of like, you know, you have to remember that and, and not immediately say, oh, shit, it's the Rona. I actually did something like that about, was it like three days into the lockdown? I woke up feeling weird in several different ways, and I went to the hospital, which was not yet overcrowded, because it was okay. just like, this was like May, March 10th or something, and I was mm-hmm. fine. Yeah, they yeah. wouldn't test me. <laughs> All right, well, that's, that's good now you're okay. And, uh, well, there's various ways we could start, but I want to start, because, like I said, this is our first time talking. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, because you, you uh, were you know, one of the film critics, uh, for this publication in the uh, late 90s, early off, called New Times Los Angeles. <laughs> and New Times, there, there's actually there was a New Times chain of alt-weeklies, you know, those, those free weeklies you get out of place. And, like, you know, a lot of, it was like a lot of uh, publications in the in the uh, United States. And one of those, uh, was the Houston Press, which I started mm-hmm. writing for 200 years ago. Okay. And, that, it was uh, a whole millennium. It was, it yeah, was a millennium yeah, ago. It, it was literally like, you know, like one of the Fanning sisters. That's how long ago it was. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it's like, okay, this, this is something you, you, you are a part of my life somewhat, and you don't know this, but I'm going to tell oh. you how. Because, uh, yeah, I started writing uh, for Houston Press back then. I was trying to break in to writing about film. I was writing about music. I was specifically writing about black music. And, uh, you know, at the time, the, the film critic at Houston Press was Joe Layden. I don't know if you mm-hmm. know Joe Layden. Yeah. I know of him, yeah. Yeah, he's he back then he used to he was a film critic for the Houston Post and then the Houston Post folded and then he became the film critic for Houston Press. And so like one November uh week I I open up the Houston Press and I see that Joe Layden's byline is gone and I see that I think I'm, I'm trying to remember if it was you or Peter, Peter Rayner, the other mm-hmm. one of the other film critics that the uh Times LA that wrote about one hundred and one Dalmatians. Uh, and, um, I don't remember if that was me, but it could have yeah. been. <laughs> but but yeah, that week it was discovered that uh the Houston Press would be picking up uh reviews uh from the, the the new Times paper in L.A. That would mean that it would be reviews from you and Peter Rayner, who's on the other Craig, and Michael Swergal, who's writing for South Pacific Weekly, but he's also writing for New Times L.A. Mm-hmm. And I, I was I was kind of pissed off about this because yeah. uh, that meant like they were they were just gonna get reviews from L.A. and shit, and then like that. Just like I thought that was like I thought I didn't think that was cool, man. Nope. And like I, re- I really didn't think it was cool. It got to the point where I wrote the editor, like the editor, the man who did like a long letter, saying 
yeah, dude, like, really? You're going to let all these other, uh, you know, get these L.A. critics to come down and just syndicate reviews and shit and not let local critics write about anything? And I think one of them got, like, really pissed off at me. And keep in mind, I'm, like, 20. So I'm in college. Like, the balls are on me to just, to just like, go after, go after, like, you and all the other critics. Because people I didn't know of. And it actually got to the point where they, like, they set up a meeting where they um, met with me to tell me why all this shit was going down. It was crazy. Like, I can't believe, like, I went through all that uh, because this is like I just, just, just didn't want, I just I just couldn't understand why they couldn't just use global critics, but they, they ended up, uh, you know, doing, I guess, following... Um, protocol, which is just like they just just use the film critics from L.A., which you know, in retrospect, does kind of make sense. Well, well in Los Angeles and shit. So. Yeah, but they were being cheap too. I mean, when I yeah. was at the L.A. Reader, I used Chicago Reader uh, reviews maybe twice because basically I wanted to have the lo- either me or one of my local stringers be doing the stuff. It seemed like it was worth having more film critics around. Mm-hmm. Um, but at New Times, <laughs> of which I could say so many things, but a number of them would probably be constitute slander or libel. Um, uh, uh, New Times, it was definitely part of the whole purpose of the L.A. paper was to have that Hollywood outpost. Um and uh, thanks. I mean, I've got to say, uh, New Times was so uh, uh, dehumanizing in so many ways. And thank God for Robert Wolanski, who was there as my first editor, who was a great guy and protected me, which I really appreciated because uh, the head of the company did not like me and and gave me a lot of grief, uh, which after Robert left eventually meant I got laid off, but years after Robert left. Well, well, well just, we just have, I just decided, man, like, why did the dude not, whoever didn't like you, because, you know, you're just one of the many. I mean, first of all, we should establish that New Times LA, the reason why that paper came, came to be, because it was like, it was kind of like a merger between two other papers. One of them was the LA Reader, which you were, yeah. Yeah, the the film editor for, and this other paper, Village View, and so it just became this one entity, and um, and just yeah. So I'm just trying to see, was it because you had that that L.A. Reader background? Yes and no. It was. It's my impression that New Times would just as soon not carried over anybody from the other, from the two previous papers. But they had hired Pete Rayner and Mike Trago, and those guys recommended me. Mm-hmm. But it still put me at a terrible disadvantage because, as Michael Lacey, the head of the company, said in our interview, he said to me, you're at a disadvantage because I'm going to ask you how much the reader is paying you. And you can't lie to me because I've got the books. 
and it meant that they then offered me like fifteen, ten or fifteen thousand dollars less than what they supposedly have as the minimum. And it took me a couple of years to get that bumped up to where it should have been. So Mike Lacey looks great in handcuffs, um, which there are photos of him. You know. Hey, wait! He told you that shit. Yeah, he said to me, he said to me, I'm going to ask you how much you make. And unfortunately, unlike everybody else, you can't lie because I've got the reader books. I mean, I don't know what Mike and Pete had been making or, you know, at the various places they had most recently been. But I'm sure it was, I mean, the reader was such a shoestring operation that, uh, during my first stint there in the 80s, I was getting paid, I think, Maybe fifteen thousand dollars, maybe. And by the time New Times came in, which was after my second stint as a reader, I, I was either twenty. I think it was at twenty thousand is what the reader was paying me, which in LA does not go real far, or maybe yeah. anywhere. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, in fact, it was uh, Mike Lacey. Mike Lacey had a meeting with the, he came into the reader office and everybody knew what was going down. And he called all the editorial people, of which there really were editorial staffers, there were maybe eight of us, eight or nine at the most. And he sat there saying, well, I'd like to keep so and so on, but we already got somebody from, from Village View who's, who's working out okay, so that job's out. And he went through one by one, and he got to me and he said, and you were hiring, which just really was not a cool thing to do in front of, I mean, the rest of the staff already knew this, but still, it was like rubbing their noses in it. Uh, so, I mean, I was the only one who made that transition, and that was, uh, I mean, these people were like my, you know, my comrades, my best friends, whatever, uh, ex-girlfriends, all kinds of people. So what you're establishing with what you're telling me, that Michael Lacey's a dick. Yeah, that's what I'm saying, except uh, is that slander? Is that something? I don't know. I've never met the dude, so like, like it. So. He he really enjoyed an editor. He would show up for editorial meetings. He bought a house in L.A., even though he was supposed to be headquartered in Phoenix. And yeah. uh, he would show up at editorial meetings, and he would tear somebody apart in front of everybody else, which I always think is real bad management for him. You got a problem? Ask the person to stay after the meeting and talk to them about it. And he enjoyed it. So, so I'm glad he got indicted. Though I think he eventually got off. Um, yeah, it, it's crazy that you're telling me just like because uh, I was about to just ask, you, hey, you mind giving me some stories? You're already giving me a lot of. <laughs> yeah, you, I didn't even have to ask you that, but just because uh, but I was just mostly looking for stuff like how was it? Because like I said, I I didn't know you when I saw your byline and no rainers. <laughs> I didn't know Ryan or Byline. I knew Michael Srigo because he was a uh, writer for Rolling Stone and the New Yorker. So I already knew of his stuff. But just just what was it like back then? 
just 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 this troika of film critics mm-hmm. over there at that paper. And and of course, as you probably also remember, um, when both Mike and Pete left the chain for other jobs. Yeah. And both of them said that they should make me first string, and there was no way they were going to do that. They were really – and that wasn't so much Lacey. That was actually, I think, the then arts editor, a woman who I did not get along with, who hired two, two much younger – I mean, look, man, I'm 70 now, so I was, uh, you know, in uh, 50 by the time – or, you know, late 40s by the time Mike and Pete stopped working there. And she hired two young guys, one of whom, Luke Thompson, is is a buddy and is really good and has this this sort of special perspective, a lot of which has to do with low-budget horror. Mm-hmm. But other, other just he's really quirky in a good way. The other one, whose name I won't mention, is because he's the guy likeliest to put sugar in my gas tank if I had a gas tank, which I don't. Um, the other guy was just plain awful. And uh, it was all you mean awful as a, excuse me, Do you mean awful as a person or awful as a writer? Uh, as a writer. I don't think he was a great person either, frankly. But um, uh, he was a terrible... It, he was a very flashy writer, and in a way that that a lot of the time he wasn't getting the job done. I thought. I mean, I liked writing funny, and I liked writing things that were, you know, sometimes uh, reviews that were fifty percent a comedy routine and fifty percent a review. But I got the I got the job done in the part that was the review, and I don't think he did. Uh, and Somehow he won the uh, whatever the LA award that year for alternative papers for criticism, and that meant then that he was golden because he had won a prize. But he was also impossible to work with. And I mean, one day Robert Wolanski called me and said, "Did you see? Well, I can't remember the name of the movie now." Um, some some British novel Tony adaptation and and uh, I said yeah but I'm not supposed to be reviewing that so and so is reviewing and he said well he's throwing a shit fit and isn't doing it so can you do it in the next two hours and I was like oh man I didn't take notes on this because I didn't think I was reviewing but anyway yeah the guy was the guy was trouble um, and he has not worked since. I got yeah, say, I was, that. You, you know who I'm referring to? <laughs> yeah, I know exactly who you're referring to because I remember, like, yeah, because there was this it, there's this ebb and flow like throughout like the late '90s, where it's like as you said, you know, Pete uh, left and then and Michael left. Well, yeah, kind of, and just like they just like, and then there was that weird period where Hal Kinson was there for like three months or whatever. Yeah, that was then. He, he he was he was another victim of the editor that I'm talking about, who was the the second arts editor after after Wolanski, There was um, the late lamented uh, Scott, and I can't believe he's yeah. good. the late lamented. And I'm, why am I blocking on Scott's last name? Uh, Scott Timberg. Thank you. Wow, yeah. that shows you what allergies do to me. Um, yeah. 
So uh, after Scott, there was this woman who, again, she hired these young guys with the notion of it was all to her benefit if the lead guy got an award. I mean, I didn't get submitted for the award. She submitted him only because she had hired him, so that was a feather in her cap if he got an award. And it was it was your basic publication politics, but kind of the worst thing of that kind I've, I've run into of being uh, treated that shabbily. And I, mean, I remember when, when Crouching Tiger came out um, and she said, well, I guess I have to let you review this one because you, you write about those movies. And yeah. I, I felt like, yeah, really. Um, and there were other movies I should have been writing about that, you know, the Matrix was so totally up my alley. Uh, and, of course, she had the other fellow, who I didn't like, write them, write it. Um, yeah. well, but uh, uh, the uh, uh, Hal Henson, interestingly, yeah. I was there for, I hope Hal doesn't mind me telling this story, for an incident that showed, I mean, we had gotten him, he had just been let go at the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. So he was a big deal, and Hal came so, in. Pardon me. Yeah, because that's what I was mentioning. Like he was, he was the guy at the Washington Post. He was just like he was kind of like, you know a, a big name at that time. Yeah, and Hal came in, and I remember when I was I was uh, while he was there, um, uh, the the editor who I don't like. Um, was going over what films I would review that week. And she was sort of listing who else was reviewing what films. And she said, uh, this was uh, uh, The Phantom Menace. She said, oh, well, so-and-so is going to review that. And it wasn't Hal. And I said, mm-hmm. you you can't do that. You can't assign that. Have you told Hal this? You know, you can't just assign it. And she was assigning it to somebody who wasn't even one of the critics. She was yeah. signing it to somebody who was a great guy, but, you know, and a real Star Wars fan. But, and then Hal walked in, and I saw him coming out of her office like like a cartoon character breathing steam out of his ears. Um, uh, I, uh, you know, was uh, the idea that she didn't realize that he would have a reaction to that, that the biggest film of certainly of the week, if not the month or whatever, uh, that she was giving that to somebody outside the usual chain and not to the lead guy was just, anyway, I'm, I was, I was glad, I will tell you, when they laid me off at New Times, she called me in for a meeting and I had this bad feeling about it. And, uh, I came in and, she and I went into the editor-in-chief's office, and he told me, like, you know, we're letting you go, but you can freelance and do this. And it was that basic, whatever you call that, when you push somebody into the gig economy rather than benefits. Uh, and the, it was a horrible day for me, but I got to say, it was satisfaction when a few months later, the editor-in-chief called her into the office and told her the same thing. So... Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that was that was there was the, the Hal Henson interregnum, and Hal was a really nice guy, 
and mm-hmm. um, and then came you know GW, who I really thought was terrible, and and as a critic, um, and he and I, I unfortunately the day after New Times closed in L.A., I posted something about that, which did not help my relationship with him. Uh, you know, that I just thought he was so frickin' awful and frankly offensive a lot of the time, so. Anyway, he's gone. <laughs> he's someplace. Yeah. He's maybe on a COVID ward somewhere. No, I don't wish that on him, but. Oh, my God. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> but, uh, like, tell me how you really feel, Andrew. Yeah. But, uh, but actually, just like, I was just thinking, because, like, even that that period where I was kind of mad. Like, there was a lot of great uh, writers, great Christians coming out there. I mean, like, there, like I said, it was Peter and then you and Michael and, and Wolanski would write reviews. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it, I was shocked to find uh, at one point, like, Elvis Mitchell started doing stuff, you guys. Yes. <laughs> Elvis got brought in at one point. Um, and Elvis is really good. And the only problem is that Elvis takes on everything he's assigned from every place he knows, and then he ends up being, you know, uh, being not entirely reliable on it. But it's a it's a shame. I mean, he's still doing fine. I mean, Elvis has had a career I would I would kill for, but uh, yeah. There's uh, always the same story when it comes up to today's that. Like he 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 he's he's like a great writer, but it's like it's just you know it's just like getting him to get to actually get on the horn to get on the ball. Anyway, yeah, we had Elvis for a while. Who else did we have? I'm trying to think. Uh, I mean, I you know, you had you had guys like like David Cronk. He did some stuff, and yeah, yeah, Robert and Bell Bills. Like yeah, Abley, I think is how he says it. Okay, yeah. But um yeah, we, we had but but basically staff towards the end the staff reviewers really were just the guy I don't like and Luke. And I don't think anybody else that I can recall. Uh, uh you know, and they were and they sometimes they were reprinting stuff from the Colorado what is it, Denver paper? Is that yes, it must have been Yeah, Denver, Denver Westward. I mean yeah, there's some times when there was like I can't believe, like I remember all these names, like MZ Moorhead. Yeah, uh, yeah, Bill yeah. Gallo. Yeah, all those guys. Yeah, Moorhead. Yeah, I still have him friended on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so that was that was the scoop at New Times. Um, uh, I will tell you. I mean, everything I used to know about getting uh, breaking. I I taught a cor- course for a while at UCLA Extension in, it was like 50% how to do good film criticism and 50% everybody saying, well, how do you get a job? Yeah. And everything I knew about all that has in the last 15 years become totally obsolete and worthless. Mm. You know, because there were ways in that don't exist now because now everything's online and everybody's a film critic and it's kind of, I mean, I, and I'm glad, I, 
you know, on one level I'm glad, and on another level I'm like, it means that the currency value of those of us who put it, paid a lot of dues to get to having real gigs has just been totally devalued. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because I'm trying to see where to, like, start off with you in terms of, because, like, I've been, you know, that's why I've been following your career now <laughs> via eBay. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. stuff. Because, like, I just felt the need to, like, just look back at, uh, you know, just uh, alt-weeklies. Is is that where so, you found those those cover stories that you yeah, posted the pictures of? No yeah, kidding. I started, like, uh, picking up, uh, like, old copies of New Times L.A. on eBay. And then I said, oh, Andy's right for the reader. Let me see if there's any reader stuff. And it's, like, really cheap reader readers out there and stuff like especially you wrote and uh so yeah and then they date back to the 80s yeah I, like... that was I, the reader was my first gig and mm-hmm. uh and again i got in through a fluke which was i the dan salute was the film critic at the reader and he and i yeah. had been in, in film school at ucla together and they had a situation where uh, uh, they needed somebody to come in to do copy editing, and I was like totally. Bro- I was I was like at the lowest point in my life. My girlfriend had left me the car had broken down. Everything, you know. I'm in an apartment I can't afford because she moved out. All those things. And Dan said, "Do you want to just do copy editing?" And I said, "Sure." So I went to work there as a copy editor. And then the editor-in-chief quit, and the arts editor took over, and he said, well, I need somebody to do a bunch of my stuff as arts editor. So I became temporary arts editor, but really, not really at all. He was really still doing it. And he wanted to get out so badly that when the new editor-in-chief finally got hired – he came to me and said, "Well, I understand you know how to, you know, you know how to be the arts editor." I said, "No, I don't." <laughs> you know, that's what the other guy said because he wanted to get out of town. Mm-hmm. But, but in fact, I didn't know much of any of it. But, but I, I did the best I could for a while, sort of as acting sub arts editor or something. And, uh, and then Dan Salit was leaving, and. Uh, you know, as soon as a job like film critic came open, even for $15,000 a year, there would be over 100 applications. But I had the advantage that the new editor, Dan Barton, a great guy, that the new editor had worked with me there. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, just the fact that you know the person and you know that they're reliable and you can work with them really... I mean, maybe I was better than the other hundred applicants. I don't know, but I certainly had that, you know, that inside advantage. Um, but the reader, and then the reader went through a period of horrible decline that you may have missed. Um, uh, I was there for about a year and a half the first time in '85 and '86, and uh, for various reasons, the Chicago reader kind of 
uh, washed their hands of it um, and turned it over to the guy who didn't know anything, who was one of their board members, who was a rich guy, and they just wanted him to get him out of Chicago. And so they said, you can go to L.A. and be the publisher. And really, within months, the thing crumbled into uh, just uh, was embarrassing. I mean, we were all embarrassed, and they kept editors kept quitting, and so eventually, you know, we had the people who had been the proofreaders are like editor in chief now for a while, and they really they they did their best, and they were weren't that bad, but it was just a reader fell into a hole until finally, uh, sometime I guess in the late eighties, uh, Henry Sheehan became the film critic during this period, uh, and he mm-hmm. was good. But uh, the um, the original publisher of the reader who had left because they wouldn't let him be both editor, or pardon me, the original editor, and he wanted to be editor-publisher, and they wouldn't let him, and that's why he quit. And he came back, and he managed to pull this embarrassing piece of crap out of out of the state it was in in like a week or two. Because he knew all the writers, he had worked with them, he just brought back a bunch of people and got the reader. So uh, Henry was was the reader critic during that period, and I was working. I was at the Herald Examiner for a while, which was the best yeah. job I ever had. And that, yeah. you know, but of course, three months after they put me on salary, uh, the paper closed down, which is been. You know, I've closed down more newspapers than you can imagine. Uh, but, you know, I was able to get all sorts of freelance work for a while there. And then uh, the reader came, and I really didn't want to go back there, but they talked me into it. And I, in the long run, I'm really glad that I did, because um, I, I felt much, by that time, I had five or six years' experience, so I felt much better about what I was re- – I felt like less of a fraud than I had felt in yeah. 1985. Mm-hmm. Well, well, let me just – you were mentioning earlier about trying to you know, get, get films that were uh, – that you knew a lot more about. Because it's funny because when – I started to find out more about you as as, as a critic and a, as a writer. It wasn't even in, uh, you know, the, the the New Time stuff and everything like that. I got the book um, Hong Kong Babylon. Yes, which is a, is a lost uh, artifact from the Miramax Books Collection, a, a book of the you know, because at the time like Jackie Chan and everything, they were blowing up, and so somebody decided, hey, we should write a book about uh Hong Kong movies and, and their and their impact and everything. And if you ever find if anybody can find this book, I suggest you pick it up. And they just like had a list of what of all these people who knew a lot about Hong Kong cinema and one of them was, was you. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had I I met the the author. Basically, that book was he had written a really extensive piece for the he was a New Yorker staffer, and he had written yeah, this extensive Dannon. yeah Fred Dannon had uh, written this piece you know fairly long piece about Hong Kong cinema. And basically, the book was that piece maybe expanded some I'm not sure, and then 
you know, he went around and contacted, you know, there was sort of a, a informal daisy chain of, of uh, Hong Kong film freaks because it yeah. hadn't gone totally mainstream yet. Uh, and I, I was in L.A. at that point, kind of the Hong Kong guy. I mean, admittedly, Kevin Thomas, because he was at the at the L.A. Times, and he reviewed all the Hong Kong movies, so he probably had more impact on people going to see them than I did numerically. But uh, of the currently working critics, I I was the guy on that because uh, David Chute, who you oh, may yeah. yeah David David was a friend. And, yeah, he used to write the Herald Examiner as well. Yeah. I basically got his job though a couple of years after he left, but he had been a friend for a while. And sometime around nineteen, I don't know, eighty-eight or something, he insisted on taking me downtown to to a little Chinese language theater to see uh, City on Fire, and I forget what the other feature was. And this was like a theater that had folding chairs. I mean, this was. There were some really big, like, movie palace-type Hong Kong Chinese language theaters. But this one was the just the teeniest of them. Um, and I didn't get it at first. I didn't get it. I said, well, that was nice. That's okay. That's good. And then David helped program a, a series at uh, the New Art, which was a landmark theater. And... Yeah. It was uh, six films, uh, basically three double features, and it was a revelation for me. I mean, it was it, it was like finding religion. It really was. It was, uh, you know, it was uh, uh, the, uh, not the killer. Uh, um, huh, better tomorrow, and better tomorrow too. Chinese ghost story, um, Peking Opera Blues. And I forget right now what the other two were, but they were all wonderful. And when I saw Peking Opera Blues, I went berserk. I mean, I huh. it's one of the few films I know where people jump up and cheer at the final stunt concept. You know, there's this fabulous stunt right near the end that is so outrageous and so Hong Kong that it's it's impossible to resist so then uh david started taking me downtown to all the video rental places and i discovered here's something that has never existed before which is to say a national cinema where all the product even though it's a foreign language all of it is is available on video with english subtitles because of the status of hong kong and there's no other country where that's ever been true. You know, I mean, it was like normally what we see is whatever filters through the festivals or, you know, gets some, you know, some oddball buzz one way or another. But here you could just dive in and see 20 years worth of Hong Kong movies on VHS. And that's what I did. <laughs> And then they started, then the, the local branch of Golden Harvest, which is the big production company, you know, the big studio there, uh, started, 
distributing them here, mostly at Lemley's or, or Landmarks, uh, mm-hmm. Lemley being the local art house chain, which probably nobody out of L.A. knows. Um, yeah. And uh, and it became, it, it just became this one, the most wonderful scene of my life. I mean, there was a period where on Friday night, I would drive out to to uh, the suburbs, the Chinese suburbs where the theaters were, and it, because Friday night they'd be showing a new film, and at midnight they would show the film that would be opening the following week. Mm-hmm. And so there had come to be this group of people, you know, all all us Anglo's who who started heading out there. Um, mm-hmm. And, did you get uh, did you get did you uh, get in any kind of uh, trouble with uh, with you know just Asian people just like who who are these white people nah around watching this shit trying to they, trying to culturally appropriate no I I mean it, it was nothing like that um, and there were also and there was a black audience that sometimes showed up, which was, I think, held over from the Bruce Lee days, because when Bruce Lee took off in whatever it was, 73, 74, he had this massive black following. Um, and some of those people, I remember seeing, God, what's his name, Steve James, the actor? Oh, uh, was, it, was it like, yeah, I know that dude, like he was uh like a big buff brother that was yeah, yeah. like a Michael Dudikoff film. Yeah, and I, I would see him out at out at these theaters in the Chinese suburbs. Um, but uh, no, there was no problem. I mean, the only thing I feel bad about from that period, and it was inevitable, and uh, and I was a part of it, is because we drummed up all this enthusiasm that began to go mainstream because. After me and people at the Weekly and, you know, people in that world started covering them and then the the Times started covering them. And it drummed up all this interest. So suddenly you have the best directors all coming here to make films and some of the actors. And there was this talent drain where in the late 90s, I would, uh, yeah, I would say late 90s it was, where... Hong Kong films started not being as good on average because uh, their star, you know, Jackie Chan was coming here to make movies and Jet Li. And, and, uh, and John Woo uh, was coming down to make yep. talkers. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, his first Hard Target, which was his first yeah. American film, actually has held up amazingly well. Um, yeah. yeah. But uh uh Wind Talkers I never could really warm to. And and John, as far as I know, hasn't made a film here in since uh, Paycheck with with mm-hmm. Ben Affleck. Um and he's been doing stuff back in you know, in Hong Kong or in China. Um and uh it's uh, you know, and the stuff he's done there I have found much more satisfying. Um, but you know, and Jackie Chan would go back and forth and back and forth, but Jackie also, uh, you know, Jackie is now, 
let me figure it out. Jackie's probably 66 now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even 20 years ago, everybody was worried about he should not be doing so much stuff as he does. Yes. Um, and, you know, through, through his 40s, he was able to really keep it up. And... Uh, but then he just started making so many really, I mean, you know, I liked Rush Hour okay. I liked Shanghai Noon okay. I mean, did Rush you like Hour, the tuxedo? Pardon me? The tuxedo, no, no. Couldn't stand the tuxedo. Uh, what's his name? Uh, was that the one that had Lee? Oh boy, the British actor, British comedian. Yeah, I know, I know the, what you're talking about, but. Lee Evans. Yeah, Lee Evans, it, I, I, a little bit of Lee Evans goes way too far for me, so. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I'm trying to think, there was a serious one he did a couple years back that I did like that was an English language film where his daughter gets blown up in a terrorist bombing or something and the cops won't do anything and he has to. Yeah. You know, take the law into his own hands, and that I thought that was pretty good. I mean, I like seeing Jackie occasionally doing his serious drama stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, it, it, it's interesting because, like, uh, I remember like when I started uh, getting this, uh, the, the the issue from eBay, uh, I looked into a New Times, and you wrote this whole Sezun uh, uh, Suzuki. Retrospective. Oh, oh, the Sage and Suzuki retrospective. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, just like that, that was that was your thing. People knew that, and and that's like yeah, yeah. People knew that. But when when just like when stuff like that popped up in L.A., that people knew you'd be the guy. Yeah, yeah. I, about that stuff. And again, I always I always have to give props to David Chute because he he's the one who turned me on stage in Suzuki too. I mean was the guy who was always one step ahead of me and it was my good fortune that he didn't have an outlet in those days so mm-hmm. I got to be the one you know breaking the news yeah uh, and I also get the sense that you know going, going back just like his back to those new time days where it's just like uh, as you say as, as we mentioned you and Peter and Michael were the guys mm-hmm. and you know Peter you know, from Peter and Michael, I get the sense that they're just like very, um, as, as we might have said for highfalutin. They get their film tape. They they are and those guys more like mainstreaming stuff. Yeah, I the difference was I mean, for one thing, they were part of the generation that was even though they're my age more or less, but they were part of the Pauline Kael worshipping generation of critics. And I like oh, Pauline oh, Kael. I wasn't gonna say that. <laughs> but yeah, sorta. And and uh you know, and I liked Cal and I read her probably more than I read most critics back, you know, when I was in film school and stuff. But uh but it just she was not I mean I preferred Andrew Saris. But also I kind of wanted I mean well I it's funny because I get I, I've been accused by one of my neighbors of being all cerebral and not yeah. you know responding directly to the films, and it's just not true. I mean, I'm there ideally to fall in love with the movie, you know. Mm-hmm. And if it's if it's high entertainment, which you know, again, the Hong Kong films, 
were, and a number of people made the comparison, and I think it's valid that the Hong Kong New Wave films, which is to say John Woo, Choi Hark, uh, Sam Oh Hung, those guys, uh, were kind of analogous in some ways to American films in the 30s and 40s. I mean, they were there yeah. to be crowd pleasers, and that didn't mean that they couldn't have all kinds of other interesting things going on. But first and foremost, they had to be entertaining. Um, you know, there were a few Hong Kong directors, you know, who were essentially art house people, like Wong Kar Wai. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but even, I mean, Chungking Express works for me on every level. Um, Ashes of Time, I've interviewed him twice about it, and I still can't figure out what the hell's going on in Ashes of Time. Um but uh, I mean, is that why they, that's why he keeps on like remaking it or something like the everything or something. Yes. Like, the time redux or whatever the fuck that's all is like happened. Just have have you ever seen the Eagle Shooting Heroes? No. Okay. This is <laughs> a great. Now. This is a great story. They were shooting Ashes of Time, and he was shooting endlessly. And they had a re, you know he and his producer Jeff Lau had. A date when Ashes of Time was supposed to be ready for it was probably uh, New Year's. And uh, there was no way that Ron Carlin was going to finish it in time. So he knocked out a parody script, basically, that Jeff Lau directed using all the same actors and basically playing the same parts, but done as a completely goofy, broad you know, just low humor at its finest. Mm-hmm. And it, it's hilarious. Um, yeah. uh, and it's it definitely should be a double feature with Ashes of Time because, frankly, it's a lot easier to absorb. Yeah. I get mad at that. But it's, yeah, it's, it's like, uh, it's like you just, you know, know a lot about this, uh, about Asian cinema, just, and, and and one reason why I want to like to talk to you about it um is that uh this is, is this, I don't know if it's just me but there seems to be this uh this 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 this, this uh uh there seems to be a lot of uh Asian uh you know uh material coming about on streaming sites. I mean, like I don't know if you know like uh RZA start up that thirty six cinema thing. I just I just found out about that like yesterday. Yeah. yeah. Um and I haven't uh he's doing uh, what was he gonna be which film was he gonna be doing next? Well he did Shogun Assassin recently, which Oh okay. Yeah. And which is, uh, you know I was going to say, Shogun Assassin is the one exception to the rule of, you know, mostly, even if you're there for pure pleasure, and it, it, you want to see the films in Chinese with English subtitles, if you're me. Yeah. Yeah. And Shogun Assassin is the one example where somebody took some Japanese films, totally re-edited and redubbed. And a lot of people, I never could make up my mind, but a lot of people feel like, well, this is actually better than any one of the the 
six, I think there were six, five or six Shogun, uh, you know, baby cart films. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it was, uh, I think I mentioned to you that, that Riza, uh, I got put together to do a commentary track with him on 36th Chamber, and it was such a trip. Um, cause I didn't know what to expect, and I'm, I'm like, 30 years behind on my music at this point. You know, I'm okay. like, and this was probably 10 years ago. And uh, it was Tarantino's idea because he was basically pushing Weinstein Company into releasing these these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, you know, so he brought me up as somebody for a number of the, the commentaries. And the one with RZA, and I'm I'm just like, I sort of know who this guy is, sort of. I mean, I kind of do, but I thought the concept was you have the ultimate super fan, Riza, and you have me for the scholarly side, and within about four minutes, it was so clear that Riza knew more about this film than I would ever know if I studied it every day for the next five years, that that I quickly realized that, okay, my role here now is just to be, like, bringing it out from RZA, you know. I'm, yeah. I'm just going to be the guy letting RZA speak and, and, and prodding him in one direction or another because there's no way my knowledge of that film was in the same universe as his. Well, you know, Wu-Tang Clan ain't nothing to fuck with, as they say. Yeah, and I'm telling you, he had me, he had me at the beginning of the uh, of the. He had me at Bong Bong, is where he had me. He he introduced himself with a Bong Bong, and I was just like, okay, (laughs) that's cool. Um, Well, well, plus you got your 36 cinema happening, which is like them playing a movie a month with Rizzo doing live commentary. And then, like, I I got Amazon Prime, and I just noticed, like, they got literally all the Shaw Brothers movies. Yeah. I put uh, two cents in on that, and then, like, the police story movies that Jackie Chan did that finally dropped on Criterion Channel. So as like an ace, I don't know if you have any of these streaming apps uh-huh. at, your, at your disposal, but just like you feel it's like a good time this just take in um, various degrees. And is there, is there anything that you suggest or anything you w- wish you would see well, on uh, more many sites? I haven't looked at the whole list. I have Amazon Prime, and I haven't looked at whatever their whole list of stuff is. But uh, uh, Come Drink With Me, which is the Shaw Brothers, uh, that I – the thing about Come Drink With Me is it's – it really is sort of the start of the new wave, except it's 15 or 20 years earlier. I mean, it was that Mm -hmm. influential. And it's a Shaw Brothers film, but it feels very different from most Shaw Brothers. I mean, Shaw Brothers films had a, a wide range of stuff. I mean, they had musicals and melodramas and all that, as well as all their martial arts films, which is what people mostly know them from. But Come Drink With Me was just different. And King Hu, who directed it, was just... Uh, he set something in motion that... Uh, when the Hong Kong New Wave happened, it happened a lot uh, because... Uh, TV production got very big in Hong Kong. Shaw Brothers actually pulled out of the market sometime in, I guess, the late 70s or early 80s. And Golden Harvest, 
have become the big the big studio. Uh, and Golden Harvest, who were really smart, because like the first thing they did was signing Bruce Lee. I mean that that was a good way to start off. And mm-hmm. and uh, all these people like uh, Troy Hark went went to film school at the University of Texas. Wow. And then went back to Hong Kong, and there were some others as well in that new wave group who basically went to film school someplace away and came back and got work doing TV stuff and bringing, like, this whole different sensibility to it while keeping all the all the crowd-pleasing aspects of it. And that was a really big deal uh, um, in the late 80s when you suddenly, I mean, John Woo had been around since the early 70s, but he didn't really hit his stride. I mean, he was largely a comedy director uh, prior to A Better Tomorrow. He did other things, but mostly comedies. And then Better Tomorrow was like this this breakout for him and was at the time the biggest grossing film ever in Hong Kong. And... uh, uh, and also had that action style that later got lifted by everybody in Hollywood, though generally yeah. not as well. I mean, I feel like, you know, I feel like like The Matrix did it well. If we want to, I guess we count that as Hollywood, even though it's yeah. sort of Australian or something. But uh, yeah. uh, so. Uh, so I, I, I mean, come drink with me was a real eye opener for me because it was so different from the other martial arts films I had seen, and it had the strong woman character, which is a thing in Hong Kong films, you know, yeah. really kick ass women. Uh, but uh, the rest of, of uh, you know, I mean, almost anything directed by Lau Kar Lung who. Uh, that's his Cantonese name, I think, and uh, it's Liu. Oh God, if I can remember the Mandarin version of his name. Um, uh, but that would include, you know, Thirty Six Chamber and Return to the Thirty Six Chamber, which which I actually slightly prefer because it's got everything that's great about Thirty Six Chamber, but it's also a comedy. Yeah. Whereas there's very little funny in Thirty Six Chamber. Um, uh, and he, I mean, when, when martial arts films, I mean, the Bruce Lee films are not comedies. They're rarely, you know, they may have little bits of humor, but not much. The combination of Jackie Chan and, uh, uh, Yun sort of inventing more or less Kung Fu comedy. I mean, they're, there, I, I'm sure somebody could come up with a film earlier than uh, uh, what is it, Snake and Eagle Shadow, which I guess is the first of their collaborations, uh, or Drunken Master. But uh, it it really turned martial art. I mean, I, there is a division I have discovered with people. Uh, there are the people who were really into martial arts films in the Bruce Lee era. And who mm-hmm. then got into martial arts. And I had a bunch of friends like that. And I saw, you know, I saw those movies in Oakland and, and, uh, 
the kid, you know, because the teenage kids in my neighborhood would say, you got to, you got to go see this stuff. And, uh, it's a different approach. I'm somebody who, who did not come to it through martial arts at all. You know, I came mm-hmm. through it through, I love movies. And, yeah. uh, uh, it's kind of a different, you know, I, I, you know, I might I might review some martial arts film and praise it, and then get you know an angry letter from somebody saying that the you know the the five point whatever death pose is not correct in that film, or it's you know this is not appropriate taekwondo and stuff. And I you know that's great, that's fine. It has nothing to do with my watching of the movies at all. Yeah. Um. You know, I mean, I might. Uh, I might be that way. when they're biopics. Sometimes I can't stop myself from talking about how inaccurate they are. But yeah, with with just these kind of sheer entertainment films that again, uh, sheer entertainment. They have other stuff going on underneath. I mean, there's a whole ethos in those martial arts films mm-hmm. that that's really powerful. Yeah. Uh, so I'm trying to think other terms. Let me see what's uh, – if I go to Amazon Prime, how do I get them to list all their Hong Kong films? I mean, just write, like, Shaw Brothers in the Oh, good, the good thinking. Okay. And they just, like, have it all there. Shaw Brothers. Yeah, Shaw Brothers in Prime Video. Let's see what we got here. A ton of them, don't they? Um, okay, King Boxer is fun. It's it's mm. it's not. Uh, it was a pretty King Boxer, which is also uh, Five Fingers of Death, is how uh, it was released here. And uh, it, it is fun. It's not New Wave at all. But but then there are very few of these. Uh, the Shaw Brothers that are new wave. Um, I'm looking. Sword Stained with Royal Blood is good. 36 Chamber. Um, Five Elements Ninjas is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Okay, now it seems to have gone. Oh, Five Fingers of... Uh, they seem to have both Five Fingers of Death and King Boxer. Unless this mm-hmm. is a remake which I don't think it... No, it's not. It's just they have both the English dub version and the uh, the original. Um, anything with the uh, uh, the five Venoms uh, is cool. Um, uh, Duel to the Death. Is that... Uh, it says Death Duel here, and that may be different from Duel to the Death. I'm not sure. Duel to the Death is great. They probably have it. Killer Clans is fun. I don't think it's great, but it's good. Um, the Five Venoms, Disciples of the 36th Chamber, yeah. Um, Holy Frame of the Martial World is just really weird. I like it a lot for its... Yeah, I've been hearing about, a lot about that. Yeah. Um, uh Let's see. They must have my young auntie here, which is another one I did did the commentary on. Um, 
legendary weapons of China. God, they got a ton. I had no idea. Yeah. Literally uh, a whole smattering, if you will. Okay. Yeah, it's you know, uh, one-armed swordsman, which is is a whole different thing. Oh, here's one I love that uh, vengeance. Vengeance is basically, you know, how in Hong Kong they would just take the plots of American films and just remake yeah. the film essentially without authorization. Vengeance is basically point blank. Oh. Made as a martial arts film. Yeah. And I think it's Chang Che. Uh, yes, it is Chang Che, and it's great. Um, and it's even got some touches that are reminiscent of John Woo, and it's much earlier than, than John Woo. Um, oh, man. They have just a ton. Prime video, prime video. Um, uh-huh. I'm trying to see if they have The Blade. That the blade is great I, as is the sword. I'm, I'm thinking about just like just like just having like a list. Like if you just send me a list, and I'll just have it included in this episode. Okay, like a, kind of like a like a yeah. appendix or whatever. I'll, like, I'll go through what you did with with Hong Kong Babylon. You had like a list of movies and stuff. So. Yeah, and we had uh, the other thing was getting to comment on those movies, which was nice rather than just making lists. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, you know, got to have two sentences worth of why I think this is a great film. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll go through that stuff and I'll send you a list like probably later tonight. So besides, uh, Prime Video, which I've got, who else is showing stuff? Is it, uh, well, well, I mean, like, I was like, Prime Video for some reason, yeah, just, I just noticed that all Shaw Brothers movies, but like, the, like, the Police Story movie is gonna be on Criterion, I don't know if it's, if it's there yet, but it's gonna be on Criterion Channel. Ah. And I'm just trying to figure out more about 36 Cinema, so just like, uh, just, I mean, that's the great thing about like, being a part of this whole pandemic, is just like, you just look on various, uh, streaming platforms and just discover because that's what everybody's doing mostly just like what movies and just asking people what movies should they see and everything I thought just gives you the platform to do that well I'll, I'll uh, I will tonight go through uh, the Amazon Prime and I'll tr- I, I assume I can at uh, the Criterion site they can probably tell me what they've got they probably haven't yeah. listed because um, yeah. I, I I do not sad to say have the Criterion Channel. Um, uh-huh. I mean, well, yeah, it's a good one too to have this week. Pardon me. Uh, yeah, it's a good one too to have the Criterion. Yeah, channel. all I've got is, is ne- I've got Netflix and Prime, and that's it. Because yeah, I'm I'm watching my budget. <laughs> yeah, and, well, that's well, actually, that's why I wanted to close this thing out on is just like uh, you know. I don't know. If you, 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 before we get started talking, you say you had been reviewing movies in a while, and no, like when you when you got uh, you know kicked to the curb by New Times LA, you were writing like uh, for other old publications, just like City Beats and Brand X, and those aren't those aren't even around oh, anymore. And just like yeah, just like so basically, how are you doing, man? Especially being you know, being a veteran. Film critic, yes, been around for a long time. Just how have you been holding up, especially well, now in, in this 
in this age of nobody leaving the fucking house if we could all die. Yeah, well, actually, this has represented less of a lifestyle change for me than for anybody else I know because right around the time my last steady gig, which was not Brand X, it was after Brand X, it was the L.A. Times community papers chain, the Glendale uh, News Press was the, the flagship there. And right around, not too long after I lost that gig, because they decided, why why don't we just reprint stuff from the L.A. Times as, you know, that same story again. Um, that uh, right around then, I had a heart attack. And yeah. Yeah. That, that really kicked the piss out of me. I mean, that, that really, I, I mean, I don't think I realized at the time just, mood-wise, what that did to me in the, in the long run. And unfortunately, to compound that, even though I had a heart attack, it put in two stents, everything was fine afterwards. Um, you know, I just have to go check with a cardiologist every once in a while. In fact, I just made an appointment to get an echo scan, whatever the hell that is. And um, right around the time, after my heart attack, I went back to driving a little sooner than I sh- should have. Mm-hmm. And I plowed into a parked car. Yeah, and and I mean I was going like fifteen miles an hour too. I mean it was like I was making a left turn, and I don't know what happened to me. I had a second of a blackout or something, but suddenly I'm hitting this parked car, and my car was not worth salvaging. So mm-hmm. since since June of 2017, and I have to I I have to say. I've been, this was almost exactly 50 years I'd been driving. I mean, I, you know, got my driver's license in whatever, 1967, I guess. Wait, 67, is that right? 50, yeah. And, uh, I had never had more than a mild fender bender. And generally, I mean, I think the only accident I had that was my fault was backing out of a parking space, scraping somebody's car. And suddenly, after 50 years to have this thing, this accident totally freaked me out and uh, meant that for a while I just didn't even want to drive again. But yeah. then I had to show some people around town, and so I rented a car for a week and showed them around town, and everything was fine. And if I could afford a car, oh, how I would have one now. But, yeah. uh, I mean, it also means that I've lost a lot of my connections to the film critic community because normally even after uh my last study gig disappeared i was i was still doing the radio show on K, uh kpcc fm uh-huh. and uh uh i so i was going to all the major screenings you know yeah. so i'd see everybody there and it would be a scene and all that but after i didn't have a car at that point it becomes essentially impossible in L.A. to go to screenings, and now, of course, there are no screenings. Um, so it's it's been, uh, you know, so I, it's it's weird. It, like I say, in practical terms, the main effect on my lifestyle, before besides having to put on a mask, is that my best friends who I used to see every weekend, you know, we're, we, we've Zoomed once, but other than that, we haven't seen each other. It's just all been telephoned. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, it's just been uh, uh, 
I, it's having some effect on me, and I don't know why, because it's such, such a small change in my life, but yeah. I know that I'm not sleeping as well as I used to, and I... Not a Okay, good. <laughs> I mean, I have all sorts of sleep disorders, and, and they give me all these medications, and uh, even even the one that's like, that basically knocks you out within 15 minutes, like, mm-hmm. irreversibly, even yeah. that one, sometimes I'm waking up an hour and a half later, and yeah. stuff. Yeah, I guess that is universal. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. I'm okay, but I don't know. I just, I just finally, I had to put off a bunch of doctor's appointments and tests and stuff for the heart and for some other stuff that was showing up in blood tests. And I just yesterday was scheduling, trying to schedule all my appointments so they'd all be at one location at, on one afternoon so I didn't have to do a whole lot of, you know, getting on the bus or taking an Uber or whatever. You know, trying to keep mm-hmm. that to a minimum. Yeah. Uh, so that's how I'm doing. How are you holding up? Yeah, well, I'm just uh, just just here writing, just hanging, just just mostly uh, not doing much, just drinking Belgian style triple in everything, and just like just reaching out to people, seeing if they want to talk about what the hell they're going through through this, you know, through this ordeal. And uh, I just wanted to see, like, if people wanted to contact you and say, "Hey, what's what's happening?" You know, you know, just like on online or whatnot. You know, do you have any places, any you know, where can people contact you and everything? Well, Facebook. I mean, I don't have a blog or a website or anything. Um, Facebook is always there, and if you put in. <clears throat> I mean, Andy Klein is a pretty common name, but if you put in Andy yeah. Klein film, it generally, you know, goes straight to me. Uh, you've got my email address. Um, yeah. Though I'm terrible about returning emails, but um, yeah. I spend half my day now sorting through the, you know, blocking all the people who are trying to sell me infrared thermometers. Um, oh, <laughs> I mean, all this stuff, all this sort of profiteering spam, uh, yeah. is, is just, it's just a nuisance, but still, it's a nuisance. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Facebook is probably the easiest way. But, you know, if somebody wants, I mean, I don't make any secret of my, my email address either, so. Well, well, I mean, just like you, they can hit you up on Facebook, and if they want to, like, you know, go back and forth through email, you can get them through that, and uh, you can give them that, and you know, go on from there. It's, but it's, it has been lovely talking to you. Yes, yeah. going through all this stuff, these, all these questions that I've kind of had for years, frankly enough, just like. As I wonder, like, yeah, Wendy, you know, you were the most, for some reason, you know, just like, I just see, like, you're the most accessible of the new times clans. It's like Peter Rayner ain't really out there. And I know Michael, well, you know, just like, just, but just like I just thought to figure he would, he would know the inside dope the most. And well, so. Yeah. Well, you know, I love those guys, and, but they have, they, 
I don't want to say I don't take what I do seriously, because I do, but they take it a little more seriously. Yeah. And I would rather be entertaining in my reviews, you know, as long as I get the job done, as long as I also say enough that, I mean, my feeling is the job is at least describe the film well enough that people will know if it's something Mm -hmm. they might want to go see. I mean, even if I hate it, you know, maybe the description will sound like something they would love. So, um, because yes, I my goal I always thought of myself really as kind of part of a consumer guide, really, mm-hmm. and and you know, and every once in a while there would be some film that I really wanted to go on, you know, deep analysis on, like like last year at Marion Bat or Mulholland Drive, stuff like that, mm-hmm. um, but. Mostly, I just sort of wanted to interact with the experience of the film and help people have a sense of whether maybe it was something that was going to appeal to them. Because I know there's stuff I love that not a lot of other people are going to love. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all have that. But, you know, I still have Vampire's Kiss on my top ten of the 80s list. And not a whole lot of people love Vampire's Kiss like I do. You would be surprised, sir. Oh, that's good to hear. So I you you got to get on film Twitter, man. Yep. Twitter is just where the party happens. I, I see. I haven't even done Twitter. I've never, I always figured, like, Facebook was enough for me. But, yeah. the, but Twitter, I, I guess I should. Um, uh, well, I mean, you don't have to, trust me. It's just like at this point. It's just like, but just like, if, it, just like, just from an observer level, just like you don't have to actually, like, like actually get like a like a Twitter handle. Just every once in a while, just type in film Twitter and just see what the hell they have over there. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anyway, okay. <laughs> okay. So, All right, well, so call, call call again if you want. This was fun. I'm and we yeah, are glad to talk to you about yeah, so t- many things. Take out the libels and slanders. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll try. Just like that. Yeah, I don't think there was. I I, I avoided names. And, yeah, uh, I got a lot of them, but yeah, but if GW, he won't come across it. <laughs> I will. Yeah, exactly. Okie right, doke, man. man. Yeah, great now. Yep, got the dog. The dog. The dog is out. Is right. now suddenly needing to go out. Okay. Bye, bye, man. Thanks. Okay, that was uh, Andy Klein. Uh, very lengthy interview with Andy Klein, and we, uh, we, I had a lot of things to ask him, and he was ready to answer them. So uh, glad that I got him on the horn to talk. And uh, yeah, that's it. That's another installment of uh, Everything Is Canceled. I'm gonna close things out uh, with uh, a track from uh, Connie Stevens. Yeah. Eric, man, I said Connie Stevens. I lost my goddamn mind. It's called TikTok, uh, written by a legendary duo of uh, Tom Bell and Linda Creed, uh, produced by Tom Bell. Is like, I believe, on Bell Records. And, you know, it's the B-side to uh, her version, like her original version of Betcha by Golly Wow, which is called Keep Going Strong, but I thought I'd play that right now. So let me just uh, let me get into that. 
All right. Uh, until then, this crazy Lindsay saying, uh, Sarah Huckabee, you, me, and some very fancy fruit pops. Yeah. <laughs>